you're divided into technological, organizational, and commercial challenges. Could you add some color to how your research is different from previous research and why this perspective is an important addition? What I basically found is that the industry recipe and the business idea, they emerge at the intersection and the overlap between these three types of knowledge. Knowledge about the industry recipe and the business idea is therefore kind of like knowing what band to be or what song to play. Welcome to this podcast. I'm Michael, and the goal for this session is to learn more how companies can solve problems, build products, and drive innovation by combining different types of knowledge. Pelle spent the last seven years in the field researching and writing a book on this topic, and today we'll get the key insights from his book. I really enjoyed reading the book, and there are many practical takeaways. Enough talking, let's get into it. I bring you Pelle Högnelid. Pelle, I'm excited to have this conversation, and I thought an appropriate starting point is to understand your path and the forks in the road that led you to write this book on knowledge combination and how it relates to solving problems and achieving results. Can you share how you ended up writing this book? Hi, Mikke. My name is Pelle Högnelid, and I suppose I've always been interested in the, in the world of ideas and games. And as a young lad, I was very interested in the game of Football Manager, then called Championship Manager. This may sound kind of dumb, but in this game, you don't play by using a controller or a keyboard, but by consuming loads of information and making decisions. And I think this also explains kind of my career choice later on. I started working for a bank in Sweden 10 years ago as a management consultant. Seven years ago, I also started a PhD project at Lund University alongside my day job. And in essence, I would say like collaborating with industry partners has really shaped my research. So just to start off, I want to say that I'm really grateful for the access I had during two years with a large telecom company and also the two years together with Omega, which is a company making software for self-driving cars. And due to NDAs, I cannot disclose the actual company names, but if you're listening, thank you for your trust and contributions to this project. Great. And the name of your book is Purposeful Combination, and you have studied how combination of different types of knowledge can explain how companies solve problems and build innovative products. And you have studied a new high-tech joint venture, Omega, which is a joint venture between two companies in the automotive industry as a base for your research. Before we jump into the case study, can you speak to why knowledge combination is important for companies? Yes, uh, knowledge integration is a bit of a fancy term, so I will try my best to explain it. I think a starting point is that companies need to solve problems to bring a product to the market and solve a need for a customer. And organizations, companies, they consist of individuals. So when multiple individuals in an organization, they work together to solve a problem, the output of that process can be understood as a combination of those individuals' knowledge. So that's basically where the name knowledge integration comes from. And knowledge integration theory tries to explain how companies can be better or worse at that process of solving problems. Specifically, I find the definition of knowledge integration by Teletal quite striking. They define it as the purposeful combination of specialized and complementary knowledge 
to achieve specific tasks. And this is clearly where I got the inspiration for the name of the book from as well. Though. And, but I, th I think also, now we're in the nitty gritty. So if you take a larger view and step back, I would say that this research is part of the broader domain of strategy research. And the notion of strategy for companies is kind of influenced by game theory. If you think about the market as a game, then it becomes quite clear that companies can either win or lose in that game. And moreover, as in other games, the best course of action for a specific company depends on the actions and goals of the other players. Clearly, this is very juicy for someone with my type of interest in football manager, etc. <laughs> That's kind of what I've been researching. So you found a new joint venture called Omega that was created with the purpose to bring the strength and the know-how from each of these companies to produce something together that they are unlikely to accomplish on their own. Can you speak to what this new joint venture set out to do and what you studied? Yeah, starting with what I studied, I think in one way to explain it is that the main interest of my research has always been strategic dimensions of large technological shifts. And from a strategy perspective, new technologies are very interesting since they have the potential to make old technologies obsolete. And this means that the stakes are typically very high. As every new technology represents a make-or-break moment for, for the incumbent companies, and in some cases, a new industry even emerges in, in the wake of technological shifts. And this was also a cliffhanger, but uh, I therefore tried to find a, a case which would allow me to study these dynamics and hopefully reveal something new about uh, problem-solving and knowledge combination that could expand previous theory. So, uh, thus... Omega. Again, due to NDA, I can't say the exact name, but what I can tell you is that it was conceived to compete in a race for technological development and commercialization of autonomous driving technology, sometimes colloquially referred to as self-driving cars. It was a joint venture between a large car manufacturer, referred to as Alpha, and a large component producer, referred to as Beta. These two had previously worked in the past with the automotive safety, and they now saw like an opportunity, you could say, to pool the resources in order to, in this new field, take on the likes of Tesla, Google, and so on in the race for self-driving cars. And this was in 2017. The game plan for Omega, in a nutshell, was to develop advanced driver assistance systems, sometimes called ADAS, and autonomous driving systems, often called AD. Sort of the setup was that these systems were supposed to be based on Beta's hardware components together with Omega's software. And Alpha, the car manufacturer and one of the two owners, was also the sort of the first customer of this solution, in addition to being one of the owners. And then you can say, okay, but, but <laughs> why do a joint venture? Why not just... Uh, have a normal supplier uh, buyer relationship here. Well, there was a business opportunity here due to the R&D nature of it. And that was that if this venture, like this development was successful, it would then be possible for Omega to sell this combination of software and hardware to other car companies. This would then allow multiple car manufacturers to benefit from the same R&D and the same like product development. And Alpha and Beta could then also capitalize on the risky investments in developing this new technology. Maybe good to know and a bit unique, this 
was not a startup, but they started as a carve out with approximately two employees from both companies, but mainly from Alpha. During the first year, they grew to approximately 600 employees. And as anyone interested in alliances, merger and acquisitions and joint ventures and so forth, this is also part of the overall challenge that the Omega was facing. And how I did this study uh, was that I used a mix of methods. At first, I worked as a consultant for Omega on a project of their choosing, both to understand the context and situation better, but also to demonstrate value and to earn their trust to conduct research later on. I then got uh, was allowed to do a number of uh, interviews with great people across the whole company, engineers and managers in product development, senior management, business development, HR, CFO, and so forth. What was the main challenge that Omega was facing? You're divided into technological, organizational, and commercial challenges. Let's start with the tech. What did Omega try to build, and what was some of the technological challenges that they needed to solve? A good question. What they were trying to build were essentially software products that together with the hardware from beta could be sold as an integrated system for ADAS and AD, basically self-driving applications for automotive. And I think the bottom line is that this product involved solving problems which had never before been sold. There was a significant source of uncertainty in the technology itself. And at the outset, it was not known whether this could be done, if it could be done at the required safety levels, or how many years this endeavor would take. And we still don't know in 2023 how long this will take. For example, one of the experts at Omega elaborated, should we wait for a technology which does not exist today, or should we apply a bricolage of 50 sensors which exists today? That depends on whether we must have a product ready by a certain date. It may be better to wait a year. Imagine then to make decisions about how many engineers to hire and how many engineers with different kinds of specializations. And to just give some flavor, you need expertise about different kinds of software technologies such as machine learning, computer vision, building a data platform, methods for validation, methods for continuous deployment and integration and so forth. But you also need expertise about different kinds of hardware such as sensors, control units, actuators, electronics and so forth. In addition to hardware and software, there are all this kind of meta layer for example, architecture, cloud, integration of software and hardware. Like, for example, there are constraints in the memory and processing power of a control unit that leads to dependencies between different teams working on different parts of the overall system. It doesn't sound like a trivial problem to solve. And then you mentioned the organizational challenge. What were some of the challenges to organize parts of these two companies into a new joint venture? I think there are two main kinds of organizational problems you need to solve. One is related to process and how you organize people along a longitudinal dimension of solving a problem. And the other part is organizational structure. How do you divide individuals into smaller groups and functions? And starting with process, Omega was quite clearly very influenced by agile methodology. This is more than established in software development, but is and was quite a little bit of a novelty in the automotive space. 
And the core ideas of Agile, for those of you who are <laughs> haven't heard about it, is basically you focus on uh, writing code that delivers value as soon as possible. So you work in shorter iterations instead of long projects. You continuously refine the plan instead of making a large project or waterfall plan and then uh, work for many months without actually knowing if what you're producing is creating value. And one of the main ideas behind this, which makes it ideal for this type of uncertain technological development, is speed and feedback loops. The game plan for Omega in terms of the process was to devise a process that would drastically improve the time to market. From prototype to customer feedback, this usually took years in the automotive industry. Omega, during the case study, worked in a product increments of six weeks, and their goal was two weeks. From prototype to actual deployment in production environment in end-user vehicles over-the-air updates. And this was obviously a huge contrast <laughs> in comparison with the modus operandi of the general automotive industry. And I think that one of the senior managers expressed this quite strikingly. He basically explained that if we deliver software which does not reach the car and the end user until four years later, at that point, it is not even certain that we exist as a company or that the team still exists to get feedback on what they have developed. And this is how a pr traditional procurement with an OEM works today. You write a contract with 3,000 requirements and specify that all that should be delivered, for example, 2023 in August. Please swallow. Uh, that was one of the senior managers' expression of the contrast between how they were approaching the process problem versus how the process is usually is undertaken. I would say that the key to make this happen, which Omega focused on quite a lot, was to establish a main software track that enabled that feedback loop all the way out to the individual car. And the opposite of a main software track in a global product is, of course, to have multiple versions of the same software with slight differences for different customers. Note also then that this is a quite relevant case of dependencies between organizational problems and technological problems. You cannot solve the organizational process problem without knowledge about the technology involved. And it, therefore, this process kind of represented itself a, a combination of these two types of, of knowledge. Moving on then to organizational structure, this was also a quite interesting organizational problem for Omega. And in terms of how they intended to solve it, I'm reading aloud here from one of their internal PowerPoints. Omega is an evolving organism of purpose-driven, empowered teams and roles, and that the organism continuously adapts depending on business market trends, bottlenecks, and customers. Omega shall be built around the value-generating development teams in order to maximize their performance and that administrative supporting functions in the company should be kept at a minimum to minimize overhead and maximize speed and flexibility. So what you hear is obviously that there has to be a type of harmony and conformance between the intended process and the organizational structure in which people enact that process. 
And you also hear part of Omega's reasoning here for what their objective was, for example, maximize speed and flexibility, but also what they are supposed to be good at. And from a strategy researcher perspective, this is quite well known that there is no one best structure to rule them all, but organizational structure is contingent on the situation, such as the sort of preferred organizational process, but also market conditions, competitions, and the needs of customers and so forth. In less technologically advanced companies than Omega, it is not uncommon to structure an organization according to a pyramid. Like in a pyramid where you have lots of mandates centralized at the top, this requires information to be fed upwards to the bosses that make the decisions. The problem is like, what, what do you do when the knowledge in question is so advanced that it would be ridiculously time-consuming to teach the boss at the top everything they need to make decisions? And in this case also, what do you do when the knowledge in question often is tacit and cannot be communicated without a significant loss? The answer is, of course, that you need a more flat structure. And I think this is what Omega tried to articulate in their idea of being a an evolving organism of purpose-driven empowered teams and roles. The part of the trick is realizing that decisions need to be taken by individuals with the best knowledge, not, not the flashiest title. And the problem, of course, with this setup is that the key mechanism for governance is trust. And this is also what one of the senior managers elaborated on. He said, basically, we have tried to push down the responsibility to the team level to not actively work with follow-up and control, to trust what the team says that they can accomplish in six weeks. And if you ever worked in any company, (laughs) you know that this little bit goes against the grain of the traditional ideas of management as command and control in a pyramid. That sounds really advanced and fascinating. Uh, I think we could spend another hour to talk about just the organizational challenges and the way that uh, Omega is organizing its teams. But in practice, was this just fancy words living as an organism that can evolve uh, with a lot of autonomy, with small teams and a molecule structure? Or was this actually the way that the company operated? That is a fair question. And I would say that part of this was their preferred approach and their ambition. And of course, it was part of like, it was a big change journey. Many of these people come from an automotive company, which does not have this type of software development and agile inspired way of working. For example, in terms of trust and how product increments were planned and sort of how decisions were made by teams, not necessarily the managers of the teams. Like part of this, I would definitely say is real. And then you can say like, this is also among all the teams, there was maybe a continuum of uh, parts that were further along on this change journey and some parts which for better and worse reasons, uh, either resisted the change or had more difficulties adapting to this game plan sometimes due to external conditions beyond their their control as well. 
I would love to move on to the commercial perspective. So even if you manage to build and organize the company, you still need to make money in the end to pay bills and salaries. What was the commercial challenge for Omega? I would say that the two epic commercial problems which any company are facing is first related to costs of production inputs and employees, basically commercial relationships with suppliers. And the second one is commercial relationships with customers and capturing value and generating revenue from the product you bring into the market. And the latter is, I think, especially interesting in this case, since due to basically competition, it is not merely enough to solve the technological problems we talked about earlier. You also have to solve these problems and ship a product within a time frame that depended on the actions of the other players in the same industry. Basically, Omega's competitors, such as Google, Tesla, Uber. And this competitive pressure also creates another layer of complexity in how you both organize and how you approach problem solving in the technological dimension. But in terms of the commercial challenge then, I would say, as I explained earlier, part of the business opportunity was for Alpha to become more competitive by making better and safer cars, which they can sell to their customers. But the other part of the business opportunity was to sell that same ADAS and AD solutions to other car manufacturers. So Omega had a business development unit, which I also worked closely with. And their objective was to make deals with other car manufacturers but not on any terms. And this is where it becomes a little bit complicated. A very fascinating uh, commercial problem which I discovered during the case was the tension around the customizability of Omega's offering. I think this is also particularly interesting since it is an instance of dependencies between different kinds of problems, organizational, technological, and also now commercial. And I think a good way to explain this tension is that software technology has a tremendous potential economies of scale in that it has high development costs to produce a software product, but a near zero marginal cost in replicating it. And for many customers use the same software. The problem is that Omega's customers preferred a customized product according to their needs, which basically would mean that Omega would have to develop multiple software products if they were to satisfy that preference. For example, why would a car manufacturer have that preference? Well, there typically needs to be a sort of an adherence between the software and the hardware that it's supposed to run on to be integrated with. And if a software is developed for a certain kind of hardware, which the car manufacturer don't have, this leads to initial costs on the car manufacturer side to adopt to Omega. This is not a situation of bad will, but it's a business. And there is a tension here, which Omega had to resolve. And optimally, Omega and the beta and car manufacturer customers, they would collaborate to unlock the scale benefits in the technology in question. But in practice, you need to strike a balance between these two modes of value creation. And 
I can give another example here from one of the experts that explains that if we would translate to this to how we work, let's say that we would let 10 customers on board and that all customers would be allowed to get their exact wishes. What would happen then? Well, we would have to develop 10 tracks or incarnations of the same software. What would happen with our margins then? Well, it goes straight down the drain. So it is about forming a global product offering, which is so strong that it can be reused by as many customers as possible. Otherwise, you won't be able to sustain margins on your product. So this is a clear example of understanding of the technological problem and understanding of the commercial problem has to be clearly combined when striking this balance. And I think this is, I just did a single case study here with Omega, but I think this is a typical also tension. Sales typically lean towards customization and product units typically lean towards standardization. You mentioned there's two main relationships. One is on the supplier side and one is on the customer side. As an investor by trade, uh, I can also see that there is a relationship to the ownership side. The group that is currently incubating and financing this venture. And to your point, you need to have a business model that long term could support and provide legs for this business. So if we zoom out and we look at these different types of challenges that Omega needed to solve, you have the technological, you have the organizational, you have the commercial, and perhaps even the funding and the financial perspective on the venture. So how did Omega solve these challenges or what happened with the company? Yeah, I think uh, in one word, what happened? Divorce. Down the line, after shipping the first major product in 2020, the owners communicated that they decided to pursue separate opportunities in the active safety technology space, as it's sometimes referred to. And I go into great detail in the book about why. But I think in simplified terms, relating to your question also about the owners, I think it got increasingly clear when I did the study that the car company Alpha was more focused on self-driving technology, which had no revenue in the short term, but could be important for Alpha's success in the long term. And the component producer, Beta, they were perhaps more focused on capitalizing on investments in technology that they made in the here and now, especially ADAS products, which were already being deployed in cars that are sold today. And my interpretation perhaps is that the overlap between these two ambitions, which was the spark for this joint venture in the first place, it turned out to be smaller than they first thought at the outset. I think that this is an example of the risks that are inherent in these kinds of learning journeys between companies. And, well, I think differences of objectives can be difficult to sustain, not least in this type of setting when when solving problems of the nature that we previously have described related to technological but also very advanced organizational processes and structures as well as commercial problems which are very difficult to strike a balance. Yeah, I think the conventional wisdom when it comes to uh, mergers and acquisitions is that they're usually very ambitious and sometimes uh, difficult to reconcile in terms of getting to the 
expected outcomes that was initially planned. Could you add some color to how your research is different from previous research and why this perspective is an important addition when it comes to understanding success and failure in achieving goals and objectives of a company? And perhaps we can take Omega as an example. Yes. First of all, now we're changing gears from empirical data to theory, and I will do my best here to use simple words and not get bogged down in fancy academia. But basically, I'd say that most previous research on knowledge combination and strategy theory has focused on how different problems vary in problem difficulty, meaning from simple to impossible. And this has been done by focusing on, for example, task characteristics such as complexity and uncertainty, uh, knowledge characteristics such as breadth and depth and tacitness of knowledge, as well as relational characteristics, social capital, trust, uh, historical context between actors and so forth. I introduce a term for this in my research, which I call the characteristic-driven mode. Basically, how you explain problem difficulty using these type of characteristics. And I think, to be clear, that this mode is spectacular. It's really good. It's research from the last 50 or 60 years that has contributed to this, to our understanding of this. But the core part is that in this view, the, the meaning of effective management is the minimum costly response given aggregate problem difficulty and the specific problem characteristics in play. When I collect the data, which you now have heard about from the Omega case, this pattern in previous research, it was replicated. But I also noticed how people often referenced what the objective was as a reason for why you solve a problem in a certain way. Meaning that how you solve a problem effectively does not only depend on a degree on complexity, uncertainty, level of trust and so forth, but on what the aim is for the organization to achieve. This was oddly familiar to me as it echoed my own experience as a professional when working on my own to solve problems for a company. And I think the really strange part was that there was almost no references in prior knowledge integration research to this quite fundamental feature of problem solving. And this alternative view, which I have contributed, is called the objective-driven mode of explanation. And in this mode, you consider the types of problems. And these types are very established, and we talked about them already. Technological problems, organizational problems, and commercial problems. And effective management through this lens is instead considered to be the, the maximum likelihood of achieving of the objectives of a firm under certain circumstances and to be clear my claim is that these two modes of explanation they complement one another they're not in competition but rather if you are serious about understanding a problem and how to organize and how to solve it effectively these two perspectives should be used at the same time I think this is a good segue to some of your conclusions from the book. The role of business ideas and industry recipes to understand what happened with Omega. Can you share what these concepts mean? This is the part that makes me really, <laughs> really fired up and engaged. I think this is very fascinating. First of all, I'd say that my interest in these two concepts 
they are a result of my observations regarding the, the importance of objectives when defining how what is a good and a bad solution to a problem. And one way to think about it is that all industries vary in characteristics. There is a certain logic and a structure and a, like a knowledge about the structure of an industry which people in that industry know. This is conventional wisdom and common sense about an industry. And within each industry, there are different companies which all have their own particular approach to how to create value and capture value, the business opportunity. And this is what can be called the business idea. So the important part of this and the realization that I understood throughout this process is that the industry recipe and the business idea, they are kinds of knowledge. These are things that individuals can know more or less about. Like an individual can know more or less or nothing about a particular industry, for example. And I define industry recipe as industry-specific knowledge about how to benefit economically from knowledge integration, from problem solving, basically. And the business idea, in turn, then, refers to knowledge about a particular business. I then define it as the firm-specific knowledge about how to benefit economically from knowledge integration. And I think a very practical way of thinking about this knowledge is if you ever heard about the business model canvas or the lean canvas, basically a, a big picture with a bunch of blocks which you fill in to describe how a business works. I would say that the knowledge you use that you employ when you fill in this business model canvas, this could be sort of a proxy for what the business idea and that type of knowledge is. And perhaps we can take a very practical view and use Omega as a case. When it comes to the business idea and the industry recipe, how can they be applied to Omega? Yeah, I think they are a quite fitting way of explaining what was going on in the case and interpreting the actions of the individuals involved. Starting with industry recipes, I think it was quite palpable during the case that the best way to solve problems was quite influenced by both the industry recipe for software development and for the automotive industry. And this was quite interesting since there were individuals at Omega which had different understanding of these respective industry recipes. And the emerging autonomous driving industry, let's say, in my interpretation was kind of a combination of these two or an attempt to combine these two. On the one hand, you have the existing dynamics of the automotive industry and the supplier relationships uh, between car manufacturers and suppliers, such as Omega and Beta. On the other hand, you have conventional wisdom of how to best approach the type of software development and integrated hardware and software systems that Omega and Beta together were trying to sell to car manufacturers. So in that sense, I think the industry recipe gives us a, a new perspective on that individuals at Omega could have more or less understanding about these dynamics when solving problems. And the same, same can be said about the business idea, I think, that there were different competitors to Omega in the same space. 
essentially trying to solve the same problem of self-driving cars. And these competitors all have quite different business ideas and strategies. For example, Omega had a more of a incremental approach by making incremental deliveries and therefore be able to commercialize their technology outputs. Whereas part of some of their competitors had the opposite view that they were long-term self-driving, no steering wheel only. And this is the essence of the objective and how it trickles down into how different people need to approach problem solving differently in different companies. And this is what the business idea type of knowledge articulates. I read your book and uh, some of the uh, research that you're using also comes from previous findings. You also mentioned that you were standing on the shoulders of giants and you can build upon previous research. And um, it would be interesting to get your perspective on how you have now extended the path forward for the next generation of researchers with your findings and case study. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Just to make clear, many things we've discussed about so far are, of course, not of my own discovery, but really learning about what previous researchers have found out about this type of situations in, in the past. And the industry recipe is attributed to J.C. Spender and business idea, the notion of business ideas to attribute that to Rika Norman. And what I have tried to do is, first of all, to provide a deeper understanding of these two concepts than we previously had. And I have done that by bringing these two concepts into the theory of knowledge combination. And this has never been done before. And the way I did it and the way I discovered that there is a potential fit here is related to the notion of objectives and the previously mentioned three categories of problems, the technological, the organizational, the commercial. What I basically found is that the industry recipe and the business idea, they emerge at the intersection and the overlap between these three types of knowledge like meaning that the rationale that people use to say that this is a good decision because it's aligned with our business idea can be explained using these three categories uh, for example a senior manager at omega said that well if you know that the business is very uncertain and dynamic then you need an organizational model which can adopt quickly this is an expression of how these things are fit together and I have tried to point out that there's a knowledge dimension to this, I think is quite tangible. And I think that the same applies to the industry re recipe, that this too also emerges at the intersection of these type of problems, and that you therefore can explain what the recipe is and what is right and wrong in an industry using these three categories of, of knowledge. You also mentioned the notion of effective management and how industry recipes and business ideas can be used to understand effective problem solving. What do you mean with this concept? What I found is that this knowledge is not just something you can know more or less about, but knowing more or less about it has a certain function. 
it can be a coordination and or motivation mechanism. And there are many benefits for an orchestra to play in harmony. And a company are, I think, in some ways not different. Knowledge about the industry recipe and the business idea is therefore kind of like knowing what band to be or what song to play. And this is the coordination part of it. Knowledge about this allows people to act in alignment. The motivation part is about propelling people to also act in that aspired direction and empowering and inspiring people to not act against the objectives of the firm, but rather try to solve, understand that what the best way to solve a problem is would be in alignment with the firm's objectives. And for those of you that have read any management literature, you know that this is a perfect opportunity for a for kind of a four-field diagram. And basically how I explain it is that the optimal situation, the most effective management of the problem-solving process, I would claim comes from making decisions that are aligned with both the business idea and the industry recipe. And vice versa, the least effective decision-making in the knowledge integration process would likely be decisions that are not aligned with the industry recipe and business idea. And you might think, why would anyone ever want to do that? Well, this is not about a will. This is more about knowledge. For example, if you are completely new to an industry, you have no idea what the conventional wisdom is. If I would summarize what we have talked about thus far, I would say that this is also, I think, the answer to the mystery which I uncovered regarding the objective-driven mode. The, the importance of understanding problems from the perspective of objectives and not only to consider complexity and uncertainty. Meaning that the objectives of a firm, they explain how to and how not to integrate knowledge effectively. And objectives requires different kinds of problems to be solved, technological, organizational, commercial. And the business idea and industry recipe is knowledge which informs individual judgment about how to navigate interdependencies between these different kinds of problems. So a better understanding of a business idea and industry recipe, therefore, in my view, is important for effective management and thus the success of firms. You mentioned several practical applications of the findings in your book, and you propose six rules of thumb for how anyone can apply these findings. Let's go through these findings one by one. Starting with the first, the management of knowledge integration depends on the objective of an organization. Yeah, I think this is the main finding, and this is what we just talked about regarding how you can apply business idea, knowledge, and industry recipe understanding in more effective problem solving in relationship to the objective of a firm. And this is not controversial in the least, I would say. I would even go so far to say that the OKR framework and KPIs, which are very ubiquitous management tools, they are examples of methods which embody this fundamental insight about how to solve problems. Problems exist in relation to an objective. I'm a big fan of OKRs. 
Number two, more difficult problems appear to require that individuals have deeper understanding of the business idea and the industry recipe. Yes, I wouldn't go so far as to say that this is a theoretical contribution, but this is rather a pattern which I think emerged in the data. And this is also about the complementarity of the characteristic-driven mode and the objective-driven mode of explaining how to solve problems effectively. I would say that what it appeared like in the Omega case is that very difficult problems, and even more so increasingly difficult problems, they appeared to be more susceptible to the positive benefits of having an understanding of the business idea, meaning that it was very difficult in the case for people to solve the most difficult and complex problems without having an intimate understanding of how the industry works or how Omega was attempting to capitalize on the business opportunity they saw. Furthermore, as a very practical application of this, I would say that Omega's organizational structure was also something that led me to this insight. I would say that if you have a very centralized organizational structure, it works quite fine if there only are, are a few people which intimately understand the business idea. But if you're in Omega's case, where you have a very flat structure and you have very like lots of individuals which are involved in the decision-making process and, and have a lot of mandate, then there is a bigger need to communicate and spread this understanding of the business idea and the interest recipe to more people in the organization. So this, I think, is a could be a rule of thumb for when to make larger investments in such communication efforts and when not to. Number three, which method to employ to boost employees' understanding of the business idea and the industry recipe depends on the problem characteristics? Yeah, I think this is another example of how the characteristics and the objectives-driven mode complement each other because there are many different methods you could use to communicate what the business idea is to your employees, right? It could be top-down that the top management gather in a group and try to articulate it, or it could be bottom-up that let's use the wisdom of the crowd and so forth, or it could be a co-creation iterative exercise. My point is that there is no one-size-fits-all. Rather, you should lean on the, the framework of problem characteristics, such as complexity, uncertainty, the degree of relatedness or the, the trust you have with your employees. You should use that as a guide to then choose which method is optimal for which situation. Okay, moving on to number four. Decisions can be understood as a de facto enactment of the business idea and the industry recipe. What does this mean? This view is influenced by Mintzberg, which had, a, I think, a very fitting and striking definition of strategy as a pattern in a stream of decisions. And I think you can apply the same perspective on the business idea and industry recipe, that one thing is the intended business idea and the industry recipe. It's a completely different thing what the real 
business idea becomes in practice. And I would say that you can use decisions that in- individuals take as a tool for diagnosis. That is to their best of ability, their understanding and their way of enacting what the business idea is. And I think that this becomes particularly clear when you have individuals in a company which are completely new to the industry or completely new to the company, that this perspective can be even more powerful in in such decisions. But this is also a little little hint and a tip. Henry Minsberg. Number five, the new concept business idea evolution points out that the business idea is a dynamic concept, which is always in motion. I think when I talked earlier about the four field analysis of effective management, uh, some of you might have thought, hmm, but that only kind of works if the business idea is completely static. And I would say that you're completely right. Part of my contribution was actually to add a completely new word or (laughs) expression for this which is business idea evolution. And in addition to being a theoretical contribution, I would also say that this is relevant for practitioners because I would claim that it's possible to manage the process of business idea evolution in better or worse ways. And in this book, I identify several practices which appear to facilitate this process of business idea evolution such as the cultivation of feedback processes. So I would argue that business idea evolution is something that a firm can be good or bad at. Got it. And moving on to the last piece, the last rule of thumb, industry recipe evolution is also a thing, but more difficult to influence in comparison with business idea evolution. Yeah. The same thing here that I've tried to put into words that the industry recipe is also a type of knowledge which is dynamic and can evolve. And I think evolution is a fitting term because it is subject to feedback from a variety of actors, what the conventional wisdom in an industry is. And I think the the rule of thumb here to point out is that business idea evolution is much more in the span of control and what you can influence within a specific company, what you as a manager, what you as a team member can be part of. Whereas industry recipe evolution is a little bit different because it's co-created by all the participants in an industry. So the mechanisms you employ will typically, I think, will be more related to persuasion of external subjects rather than be a matter of inter-firm communication. So now that you've finished your book, it's published, it's available, anyone can order a copy. What do you happen to see with your contributions and what you've talked about today? Yeah, that is a good question. I think that ideally, I want to contribute to a better understanding of strategy and that the type of approaches which I am using and which many of my references are using, that they become more part of the mainstream for how we understand strategic dimensions of technological shifts, for example. 
the goal, I think, is a more realistic theory, which embraces bounded rationality of individuals. It embraces uncertainty and judgment. It embraces persuasion, but also business ideas, industry recipes, and the view of problem solving as knowledge combination activity. I think genuinely these are more sophisticated ways of understanding how you can be better or worse at this process that I think can make for better management and hopefully more successful endeavors by companies and other organizations. I really enjoyed this conversation and we're coming up to the last mile. Are there any closing thoughts or shout outs that we didn't cover? If I have the mic, I definitely want to do some shout outs and thanks to some people which really influenced and contributed to this uh, project. Of course, my two supervisors, Thomas Kalling and Mats Kjerman, were instrumental all along the way. And for certain, especially the academic seminars, uh, the mid and final seminars, I would say Lars Bengtsson and Magnus Johansson made significant contributions as well. I'm very thankful for that. I would also say that I'm very proud to be part of a Lund University tradition of embracing a practitioner perspective on strategy research. The before mentioned Richard Norman was not only a leading Swedish management consultant many decades ago, but he was also a prolific writer and, and contributor to Lund University. My supervisor, Thomas Kalling, has written uh, very insightfully about business models, which has certainly influenced my view and, of course, influenced this project. And this is something surprising, which obviously you couldn't calculate uh, in advance. But now after the fact, I'm very happy to be part of this lineage. And I think that also rhymes with the goals that I stated earlier, what kind of research and what type of theory I want to contribute to. And for those interested in learning more about the questions that we discussed today and the theoretical perspectives, there is a very long list at the end of the book, which is also available as a free PDF, by the way, if anyone wants to <laughs> read the long one. I recommend listening to this podcast, though. I think it's much, <laughs> much more enjoyable. But some ideas for uh, like good previous researchers that have made significant contributions. I would say, of course, Frank Knight, Herbert Simon, Henry Minsberg. But for knowledge combination in particular, both Grant and Spender, I would also mention Grandori, Tell, Nickerson and Sanger. Regarding strategy theory at large and our understanding of also business models, business ideas and, and industry recipes, I would say that Michael Porter is and remains a quite, uh, quite important and influential contributor. Peter Drucker is another one. Already mentioned Richard Norman and... Thomas Kalling's work on business models, I think, are also worth mentioning. Awesome. It's a quite impressive list of people. And uh, we'll share the link to the PDF in the show notes so that anyone can look up these names. All right. Awesome. Final question. Where can people find you or get in touch? Yeah, if you have any questions, if you want to bounce some ideas or ideas about collaborating together in the future... Find me on LinkedIn, uh, Pelle Hognelid, or on Gmail, pelle.hognelid at gmail.com. All right, that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to this podcast, and don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks, Mikael. Thank you, I appreciate it. Bye, everyone.